Welcome everybody to the Safina Society Nothing But Facts live stream uh, as we're opening up here a little bit uh, late but we are streaming until inshallah ta'ala 2.15 in which I will take uh, questions Q&A, we'll open it up for Q&A discussion and by the way some of you may have good things to offer you may have um, evidences and things that are uh, perspectives so don't, don't hesitate to offer that uh, and to come with the, those things that we everybody else could learn from, but we're going to go to till till three fifteen today, three ten, three fifteen, and we are going to start first. I'm going to discuss something actually. Some of these shabab, uh, what in the world is that? Some of these, some of these shabab youth have gotten me down memory lane, and I'm going to talk to you about. Something that happened to me, which was very good, but I mainly want to talk to you, not from about my perspective, but just about what the world was like and what some of these shiuch used to be like. It's from the dhikr of the salihin. You have to understand, way back in the day, if you lived in, the, in any western country, there was no connection with the east, except that it was made directly by people, and it was slow, and it was letters, and phone, landline, home-to-home phone calls, and you had to physically fly out, and it was not the, as easy as it is today. I'm actually thankful with what it is today, and we should take advantage of it. Yesterday, Harun and I were discussing a mas'ala that came up. We were on WhatsApp. Literally, we contacted one of our shiuch, and we got an answer right away, right, on a, on a new matter, a nazila. Nazila means something that came down, meaning something that was new, something that didn't exist in the past, but it exists now. And using principles that we know from the past, uh, that we were able to get the answer to this question, just like that. I mean, that's it's such a great use of technology, and that's what technology is really. Allah has a, uh, put it out there as a test for everybody, and when He takes it out, it's a test for everyone. And in the, in the eras where they didn't have technology, it was a test. Who really wanted, you know, something? You had to physically move. So, at the time, I was at uh, GW University, George Washington. And I had chosen GW because Sheikh Mohsin and Najjar was there. Okay. And uh, Sheikh Mohsin and Najjar was not at GW, but in Virginia. And I wanted to be able to study under him. And I did. Every week uh, he would have a gathering and I would go to that gathering and, and learn. And sometimes in the middle of the day. And at the time, the founder of Medina Institute, Mu'atasim um, Atiyah, uh, was there. And so uh, we used to see each other at these gatherings all the time. And we were just a bunch of Shabab trying to study. There was also a Mauritanian Sheikh from the Embassy of Mauritania. So I went to the Embassy of Mauritania, believe it or not. Just be like love of Mauritania, that Sheikh Hamza created in a lot of people. So I literally went there. It was such a hilarious thing. First of all, the, the ambassador lived up top. Of course, it's a very beautiful area. Right? Only officials live there. Regular people don't live there. It's all like official homes. It's like on a hill. All right, in Washington, D.C., like hills and valleys. And it's called Massachusetts Avenue. There was a masjid there. Near there, like, like one street off, was this, ambassador, uh, this the, the ambassador's house. I get there. It's literally one dude in, like, flip-flops uh, sitting at a, at a table, right, at a desk, essentially. And I'm like, what, what is this? This is the embassy of Mauritania? And he's like, yeah, what can I do for you? 
Uh, and turns out that the ambassador lived upstairs, him and his family. I used to see the kid, I used, because I ended up having classes uh, there. I used to see this, this kid, like, um, biking from school, biking home from school, son of the ambassador. Now, the ambassador had brought in a sheikh named Talib al-Qalqami, a retired scholar, flew him over and brought him to the, uh, he lived with them in a room in the embassy. And this sheikh would walk. And the way that I met him was that I looked one day and I saw a Mauritanian, I knew he was Mauritanian, by, you know, some of the clothes that he was wearing, that darra. All right, it's a famous garment. And he had a white beard. He was older. And I was like, what in the world? I literally yewed the car around. Turn around. And I said, assalamu alaikum. We started talking. And then he, uh, we started studying Arabic together. Funny thing was this sheikh. Literally, you don't understand. And I, I try to explain the youth so they have some context. Pre-modern people. You just don't understand pre-modern people. They're pre-modern people, their life is much simpler. They're not exposed. They don't know things. So Sheikh Talib one time came to the masjid in a pair of slacks and a tuxedo shirt. And I said, Sheikh Mahada. So he said, oh, the darraz, his darraz, they were being washed and they didn't come back in time. So he was told, go into such a closet and, pick, and wear whatever you want from such and such a closet. Apparently he went to the ambassador's like. I guess the guest room closet, the ambassador had a tuxedo there. He, so he's got this striped tuxedo shirt open and slacks. So he said, Sheikh, this, is, this shirt is only for like a specific suit, right? And he's like, it's all clothes is clothes. In any event, that's uh, what was going on. And at the time, right before 9-11, Habibadi came for a tour in Virginia. Habibadi at the time, he was not that famous, but I had already met him in Tarim, Yemen. And I cannot tell you how helpful Habibadi was. He bent over backwards for all the foreign students. He opened his home up. His home essentially was like lunch every other day in his home, or a lot, I would say. And the way that he made the students feel welcome and special, your heart just melted, and that's why people who go, you take one foot into the Habib, you never come back. Because of the way that he treated. Now, I know some people are going to say, oh, but... He's now involved in politics, and he said this, that, and he associates with this, that, and the other. Just put a line right there. We're talking about the past, okay? In which, that, that, that's how I met him. I didn't meet Habibadi later on. In other words, I didn't interact with him later on. I interacted with him even like shortly after 9-11. Maybe up to 2003, 2004. But I'm telling you, the way that he would treat the students who would come in, the hospitality... He would say, Allah has sent you students to us so we can get reward. So maybe we can be forgiven. Maybe we can have something with Allah by the way we treat you. Allah sent you to... So his perspective was not that, oh, these people are coming to study with us. No. Allah has sent these people who are trying to draw near to him to us. So our job is to treat them as the guests of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like in the Haramain al-Sharifain, Mecca and Medina, we call... The, the, the hujjaj are called Diyufur Rahman the, they're the guests of the merciful he treated us so well and made sure that we felt so at home and go from New Jersey to Yemen is not easy right back in the it's a culture even today you go you're going to have a little bit of a culture shock in any event someone had arranged for him 
there was a connection he had, a very well-off family in Virginia. They set up a tour for him in August of 2001. So he came in. We can't believe it. He's here. We went down, and I would attend classes and go straight to his house, to the house that they were staying at. It's a, very, it's a pretty well-known Egyptian family, and then now they have a big mosque in Egypt. And then we just spend the whole day. I don't even study for my classes. Just spend the whole day, read a book, say a word, take a break, uh, have a discussion. Then you have a public session with people. It was just amazing. And it was like a handful of people, right? Not a lot of people. And this family, they were gracious enough to let people, just the Shabab, just stayed there. Sleeping under a kitchen table, sleeping in a room, who knows where, everyone's everywhere just to be next to the sheikh. Then the sheikh left, okay, and guess what morning he left? September 11th. September 11th was his day to take a flight from Washington, D.C. to New York City. How crazy is that? Of course, halfway through, we turned right back around, because it was a morning flight. All this incident took place as he's driving to the airport. Okay. And, of course, turned right back around and went back to that house. Now, of course, everyone had the shock of 9-11, but after that was through, it was, wait a second, where, where's Habibadi? Oh, he's staying at the house. So we got the benefit that he was stranded. And if you remember, back in those, at that time, there were like no international flights for like two weeks. So Habibadi was stuck there. And he would say, Allah has kept me here for you, right? For you people. And literally, I'm telling you, we would show up, three, four people. There, a breakfast spread was laid, three, four shabab. And Habibadi would sit for hours. And then he'd pull out a book. Then he would tell stories about, you know, talk about the stories uh, uh, of the scholars of Tarim. It was heaven, I'm telling you. It was paradise. And we ended up having such a good connection that about a year later, when I had a chance to do a research paper, and it was the master's thesis, and asked him, I want to use this as, an ex- as a reason to, to go abroad, right? And so, at the time, who was my uh, master's uh, professor? Sayyid Hussein Nasr. Now, I knew about the books of Sayyid Hussein Nasr, and they were pretty nice books, critiquing the modern world, Islam and science. i got to be honest with you, I thought he was like, for the longest time, he's like a Daisy uncle somewhere writing these books. I didn't know he was a big shot, right? And he ends up being my professor, and we had a good relationship. Yes, I knew that they had some perennialist beliefs, but at the time, they were over there, and we're over here, and we didn't mix. So if I came to benefit something from him, there was like good relations, right? I later had a problem around 2015 when they started to mix together, and common Muslims don't know that these are all, they're perennialists. They have a different aqidah completely. So you guys be over there, we're over here. If I want to benefit, I'll come to you because they do have a lot to offer. You can't just right, deny that. So he signs off on it and he loves the idea. I asked Habibadi on the phone. I said, well, who should I do it on? He said, you either do it on, you do it on the seniors, shiuch, Sayyid Muhammad al-Alawi al-Maliki, Habib Ahmad Mashur al-Haddad, or Abdul Qadr al-Saqaf. Habib Abdul Qadr al-Saqaf. So I thought, well, the one who is, well, the one of them had passed away. I, don't, I want to meet somebody. 
the one who has the most literature, that's material that you could write about, like quickly because the material is right there, and the one who had so much to, to, he had issues and he had dramas, they had a bounty on his head. The Saudi Shuch wanted him executed. Okay, he met with the king. They made an agreement okay, to stay under house arrest instead of execution. So I was like, no, this is the story. And it, plus, I had heard the name from way back. I had heard that name being mentioned, Sayyid Muhammad al-Adul So I said, it's Sayyid Muhammad. So he said, okay. He put in a couple calls, and then they knew that I was coming. So I go to Mecca uh, to study under Sayyid Muhammad al-Adul at the time. My mom, she had a connection. My parents had a connection in Saudi, and that connection was able to bring me over because the visa is an issue, right? So he was able to bring me over, I guess, like as a guest or an employee or something like that. That's how I was able to spend all that time, okay, in Mecca, a summer, essentially. I get there, and they didn't actually believe me because Sayyid Muhammad al-Alu al-Maliki, he was, they had fatwa on his head. He, his family had been scholars in the area for ages, decades. They were a well-known family. He became the rector of theology at Umar Qura University. But as the Wahhabi scholars got more power, they removed him, and then they put a bounty on his head for things that he had in his books. And then, in 1994, he met with the king, who was King Fahd at the time. King Fahd knew, you can't just execute an international scholar. It's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous on, in the Islamic front, and they do have relations. They have to show some modicum of uh, civility, so to speak, uh, in front of the Americans, right? And the Western Front. So, of course, King Fahd was reasonable enough to realize that this is out of the question, okay? So, it's out of the question that we're going to execute him. So, what they did is they brokered a deal. And what Sayyid Muhammad said was King Fahd invited him and was very cordial to him, was very nice to him. And he said, let's make a deal, you stay home. Do anything you want within the four confines of your home. Nothing in public, nothing on TV. It's a deal. The only thing that he was allowed to do in public is Hajj and Umrah, and even then, he's not allowed to attract a crowd or give a speech. Attract a crowd is out of his control, but he can't give a speech. Fine. Now, his home... House arrest, you think like one of our homes. No, his home was a compound. So part of this was that they built, buy properties and build literally a compound. And that's where he lived. He would travel to Syria, Egypt, and give talks there, find no problem. Sudan, he had shiuch in Sudan. Morocco, he traveled the world and give speeches. But in Mecca, Rusayfa is the area, he had to stay in the four comp- walls of his home. And it was a, a whole block. He had supporters, worldwide, international businessmen. They supported him. A whole block. In this block was a dormitory for students. Indonesians came. In this block was a masjid, his personal house. And it was also, there was a guest musalla. And then beyond the guest musalla was a very nice courtyard, outdoor courtyard. And that guest musalla basically was an area where he would hang out after between Maghrib and Aisha. So I get there, and they get very suspicious because 
the area, it's like under suspicion. Even the cab driver, the cab driver who dropped me off, okay, he said, why are you coming here? I said, to study with Sayyid Muhammad. He said, I came, drove by here one time before, and I heard everyone saying, Ya Hanan, Ya Manan. I heard them saying, Ya Hanan, Ya Manan. So I was like, and? And he's like, uh, what is this bidah? To say, Ya Hanan, Ya Manan. I was like, Subhanallah, the, 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 the doct- indoctrination had reached such a point that you think that Ya Hanan, Ya Manan is no longer an issue of fiqh because we do agree and concede that the, the way in which dhikr is done can be a discussion in fiqh that is valid 110% if you say we do not say dhikr in a jama'ah. It's 110% valid. In all the madhahib. And to say that you do it in one voice is also 100% valid in all the madhahib. Right? That is not an issue at all. If somebody says, listen, I do dhikr by myself with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I don't do it in one voice with everyone. I consider that to be wrong. Okay? Or incorrect. But the way they talk about it was that it's like you're on the cliff of shirk. So it was really like a bizarre. Today, you may think that that's crazy, right? Given everything else in the world, at the time, that was a norm. That you do those things, you're literally on the cliff of shirk. Okay? So that was a, no- a normal perspective at the time. And most times, I didn't tell people I was studying with Satan Muhammad unless I felt like I wanted to see how he was going to react. I saw some tulab al-ilm of Umul Qura. I knew they were tulab al-ilm. They looked like the students. They had um, books in their hands. And they said, they struck up a conversation. And I told them, I wanted to see how they react. I said, I'm going to study with Sayyid Muhammad. Oh my goodness. Their faces turned like janazah level. La hawla wa la quwwata billah. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. We need to tell the authorities. And I thought, wait, you tell the authorities? What? It's that serious that they had shut him down. So when I went knocking and I have, I have a letter in my hand stating that um, here as a re- with a reference from Habib Ali to study with Sayyid Muhammad, they didn't believe it. The, the doorman did not believe it. And they wouldn't let me in. And at the time, remember, this is not the era of just pick up the phone, connect to Wi-Fi, and send a text Communication was really hard back then. And so the communication at that time, I was like really devastated. I didn't even know if this was going to happen because I had no way to convince this doorman. He's the only connection that I had. Eventually, bifadlillah, I ended up meeting a Uzbekistani man. His name was Khalid. The Uzbekistanis have been there for generations. He was one of them. And I had, by asking around, poking around, ended up somebody right in Mecca, in the haram, uh, connected me to him. And that person then, he would, uh, he helped me get in. Then you get in, Sayyid Muhammad at the time, he had surgery on his knees and he was not in good condition uh, physically. So he would sit on a Maharaja type of chair. Like they got him like a throne. It's a big chair. And the, the majlis had a big picture of, of the green dome on one side and the Kaaba on the other side. And people would come in Tea would be served. It was like a hangout. It was a relax. Pray Maghrib all the way to Aisha. And they would hang out, have sweets, chit-chat. People who needed to meet him would meet. And there he would uh, 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 call, bring me up. It would be like my turn, basically, to talk. 
and I would ask him about questions and whatever, and he would bring this book, bring that book. I ended up leaving with a pile of books this big. Essentially, that's, he wrote a lot of books, but this was his books, and then he said afterwards, this was little under than two months. And back, you know these people, it's amazing, they don't have no such thing as a weekend, right? You know, the weekend is the invention, and really established it was Henry Ford. So the rest of the world don't always have this. Like the Islamic world, Thursday night was the big night because there's hadiths about Thursday night in terms of ibadah, du'at being answered, gatherings. Friday morning, there's no work. This is the old Islamic schedule. And that's it. So Thursday evening and Friday morning. But other than that, so there was no such thing as a weekend. Like go to him Monday through Friday. No, you went every day. He was there every day. And there were some times where he would not come out. Like maybe he was sick or something. He wouldn't come out. And in those days, when he wouldn't come out, then I would go to after Asr, uh, till Maghrib, until Aisha, there, were, there was a group of Mauritanians. And as I said, I had the Mauritania bug that I had gotten from Sheikh Hamza, the love of Mauritania, and I want everything Mauritanian. And then uh, there was there uh, Sheikh Abdul Aziz al-Mali, He's well known. He's a very good scholar. He's from Mali. And then there was Sheikh Abdul Rahman with Sidi Muhammad. In Medina, there was Sidi Muhammad Ma'moon, Mauritania as well. He prayed every salah in the same spot. All the Mauritanians in Medina, they pray in the same spot. Because in the Maliki fiqh, when the, the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu saying, As-salatu fi masjidi hadha, right, is worth 100 salah. They consider it only the Prophet's mosque, not the extension. The extension gets the reward of salah in a masjid. But when the great reward only applies to that. So all the shanaqita, shanqit is one of the terms from Mauritania, they pray in the front of the mosque. And you could tell them the way they dress. This sheikh, he takes a little cabbie for like three reals a day, three blocks, that takes him to the masjid. Now, Sidi Muhammad Ma'muz, if anyone's been to his house, you cannot believe the conditions. They uh, told me, where's his house? Go there. There's a white building. And at the bottom of the white building, you'll see a door. So I get there, and he literally lived like in a basement. Literally, it was a basement. There's a white building, about three blocks from the masjid, a Nabawi, a Sharif. And there's a little door, right? Metal door. You go down the steps, and he literally like, lives in a basement. Filled with books, very musty with the bathroom, and then you can go upstairs, only his family goes upstairs. But he stays downstairs, he sees the students downstairs. There, and he would recite the Buddha every day. Not like a singing recitation the way, the Mauritanians don't do that. They just recite it like a poem. And then he reads from his books, and he sees students all the time, right? And uh, there, they, he, we started, the, I started the Risala of Ibn Abi Zaid with him. Started before I studied ever with Sheikh Sadiq and the other shoe started with him. And it was very hard to understand these Mauritanians, to be honest with you. They have an accent that's heavy. So unless he was going straight fusha, it was hard for me to understand. But in any event, I'm just giving you a glimpse of what life with the shoe was like back then, where before WhatsApp. Today, you're lucky that you can connect. But at the same time, there's so many other distractions, right? Uh, that's what technology brings you. Sayyid Muhammad al-Aliwi al-Maliki died about three years or four years after I met him. 
he passed away, but also at the same time, a lot of the restrictions were lifted towards the end of his life. He became on, he went on Syrian TV, Egyptian TV, a lot of other things. And so I, I say that in the spirit of mentioning the, the, the righteous people that lived before us, because when you have a love for them, you have a love for what they used to do. You love what they used to do. And you love, what did they stand for? They ded- dedicated their lives to preserving the knowledge of the deen and acting upon it and spreading it. What else is there? That's the inheritance of prophets. That's what it means to be the inheritor of a prophet, is you focus on preserving the knowledge that has come down. And you transmit it exactly how it is. Don't edit things. Don't bring your new, any perspective. Trans- preserve it exactly as it is. Practice it. And balance, where is balance? Is by looking at the other scholars. How do scholars practice things? How do they measure luxury versus excess and, and, and zuhud? How do you measure all these things? By their, uh, by analogy. Like how much do you know, how do you know if you're spending too much on a car? Who's to say or what's to say that $17,000 is a good price for a car? Well, you look at the other prices of cars, right? It's all relative. So likewise, luxury, zuhud, etc., it's relative. And if any of you are out there are youth, one of the best time, uh, ways uh, to make use of your time and your money is to physically travel and just try to, try to study. Let me tell you, there's a lot of people who did it a lot, way more than me. I met uh, Abdul Karim Yahya and Jamal ad-Din Haisaw. Right? And one of the things that they used to do is, let's see your passport. See how thick it is. Their lit passport was bursting. They had to go to the embassy to add pages, right? And some of these countries, like they had to give you a piece of paper that said that I don't know what it was, but they have to staple papers to your passport. Abdulkadir has passports like this big, bursting at the seams. Uh, Jamal Adin Haisaw, he was a student of knowledge from Atlanta, Georgia, and I think he moved to I don't know where he moved, but he's doing Dawa now. His passport was like this big, right? I looked at mine, that mine, oh, you're, you're still like a, you know, those little fish. You still look like a guppy, right? Because I was young at the time. They were much older than me. Like 10 years older than me. And they had more experience. And all of a sudden, you know, I used to envy the converts. Us Arab parents, Daisy parents, you go home, right? They don't have a concept of going home. No one's ever calling, when are you coming home? Come home now. By the way, come home now is not a word to be uttered by some families. For us, that's the norm when you're here. You know, still living with your parents. Come home, right? We have big guys, 6'3", 200 pounds, 250 pounds. Hey, you want to go out? No, my mom won't let me, right? As long as you still live under your parents, they have the right to tell you what to do. You're living under their roof. Uh, so I used to envy the converts for that reason. So if you're somebody who is not able to study too much and not able to travel and you're, you feel like you're on the outside looking in, don't even think about that. A lot of people... There's no such real... It's all relative. And as long as you measure yourself against yourself. This summer, what did you do? This winter break, what did you do? Don't waste it. Measure yourself against yourself. Don't measure yourself with somebody else. Because I used to envy a lot of those convert families, uh, the convert guys, because there's no such thing as going home for them. They're allowed to do whatever they want. At the same time, they don't have a lot of support that we have. Right? You don't realize when you have a, a Muslim family and 
you have an extended family, you don't realize how much warmth and support that is. Okay? They have to go home and their parents don't know what they're doing. Right? Their parents don't have any appreciation of their Islam. And some of them fight it. I heard, there was a convert sister one time she would pray and her mom was Protestant. And you know these Baptists, what they're like? Okay? She's a Baptist. She used to take the chair and sit in front of her daughter and fold her hand like this and hold the cross, right? While the daughter's praying and said, to make sure that you're bound to the cross and you're bound to me. So the girl's making sujood and then her mom pops a chair, sits in front of her, has the cross and says, now you're prostrated to the cross. Let's see what you're going to do. Okay, so she was a Nigerian Baptist. Uh, It's tough, right? So... Uh, never measure yourself against other people. Just measure yourself against yourself. When you go uh, to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He's going to ask you, what did you do with your time? Not your time versus somebody else's time. So I, don't, I, I want to make sure to, to sort of inspire people to study with these, uh, try to seek scholars out, but I also want to make sure nobody feels like, oh, I'm on the outside and everyone else is doing amazing things and I'm on the inside. That's how I felt every single day until I would travel. And every time I'd leave back, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're still there, and I have to come home, blah, blah, blah. So that's the first segment of today's program, tell you, uh, give you a little bit of a, some of the stories, and a lot of people have a lot of amazing stories. So try to read and, and hear about these stories of meeting scholars as much as you can, because it makes us love, uh, love them, love the journey to them, and love uh, what they stand for, all right? Now we're going to move to our uh, segment of the day, which is the nawafil done at home. And that at-tatawwa' uh, voluntary ibadah is better to be done in the home uh, than in the masjid for a couple reasons. Number one, when you're in private, the ikhlas is better. So then you ask, well, why is the obligation better in the, in the masjid? Well, that's to encourage and also to bring people together and to let you see the piety of other people. Sometimes you come to the masjid and your heart is in a regular state and then you see somebody in a fervent dua and that inspires you. And you ask yourself, why is my heart so hard? And this man is crying, right? So it moves you. Sometimes you have a question, you know where to ask it. Sometimes you have a maslaha. A maslaha is a worldly benefit, such as I need a doctor, I need a mover, Right, And it's not that you go to the masjid to ask for that, but it gives you a connection. So you see some guy who comes in overalls every day. Well, you know he's a painter now. You see a guy, on the, his, he, he rolls up to the masjid with Electric Company USA. Now you know he's an electrician. So he brings people together. You see another guy coming in his scrubs. So you know he's in the medical field. So the masjid brings people together in that regard. Okay, it's, So... That's why the obligation is better done in a group, but nawafil is better done in private by yourself. Right. So the only time that nawafil is better to do in a group or in public is when there's encouragement of others. Or you're trying to encourage others. Even tarawih is better done at home as long as the masajid will not become vacant. So if you fear that if a trend develops and everyone prays tarawih at home, that it would actually cause a stagnation of the masjid, then to go to the masjid is better. Malam to al-masajid. This is in the Ashmawiyah. 
Okay, this is from Haram ibn Muawiyah on the authority of his uncle Abdullah ibn Sa'd. سألت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عن الصلاة في بيتي والصلاة في المسجد قال قد ترى ما أقرب بيتي من المسجد فلأن أصلي في بيتي أحب إلي من أن أصلي في المسجد إلا أن تكون صلاة مكتوبة The Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said Do you see how my house is so close to the masjid, okay? which means there is no hindrance at all from the Prophet praying in the masjid. His house is bordering to the masjid. He says, to pray in my house is more beloved to me than to pray in the, in the masjid, except if it is a salah maktubah. Okay? And here we see the Prophet وسلم, saying, Ahabu ilayya. It is more beloved to me. This is important because in the early generations of scholarship, this expression, I love, more beloved to me, was one of the expressions that later on we be crystallized and formalized that to mean makru or mandub. La uhib. Makru. Right? When a faqih, a mujtahid imam such as I don't know if others use it, but I know for sure Malik used it a lot. More beloved to me. Mandub. Recommended. Recommended based upon ijtihad. You see the difference here? You could say, if the Prophet recommends something, then it's sunnah. You don't say, like, it's beloved to me. No. But recommended based on his analysis of the evidence, which does not have an explicitness. Okay? It's not explicit, but there's evidence for it. At that point, they say, more beloved to me. And likewise, if it's makru, and in some uh, works, forbidden, but by ijtihad. Ijtihad means scholarly effort as opposed to a cut and dry, no discussion text from Quran or Sunnah or Hadith. Then at that point they say, la uhibbu. I don't like it. I don't love it. So some have categorized that to mean makru. Others have categorized that to mean haram. Okay, probably depending on other contexts around it. So, the Prophet ﷺ used to pray in his home, and we should always establish the salah in our homes. It's going to bring barakah to the house, and malaika descend upon a house in which the Qur'an is recited. So, the Qur'an should be recited in every house, the Prophet ﷺ said, do a portion of the salah at home and do not make it a cemetery. What is a cemetery? It's a place with no life. Well, how could my house have no life in it? Life when the Prophet uses the word life or refers to life and the Qur'an uses the word life, it oftentimes implies heavenly life. Right? Like that which draws you near to Allah Ta'ala. Malaika, descending upon it. Alright? Descending upon the house. So, لِمَا يُحْيِيكُمْ Okay? What gives you life means the life of your heart. So give life to good deeds that bring down malaika to attend with you. You see, good deeds, it sounds like a Sunday school tacky thing, right? Do good deeds. I remember sitting one time with uh, an Egyptian man. Very well-off family. The girl comes, and he's trying to relate to his teenage daughter. So he says, how was school today? She says, good. 
What did you do? Nothing. You know, these teenagers, when they get like that, you got to be parents. If you have teenage, teach them how to talk, how to hold the conversation, how to smile to an adult, look them in the eye, talk, ask a question back, say something. I can't believe some teenagers are still like this. How's it going? Good. That's it. Don't you know how to talk, how to hold the conversation? This needs to be part of our education. So then he says to her, now they, I, I can tell in her eyes, this is like a teenager is like on the brink. She has no interest in the deed. He's like, did you do any good deeds today? And she's like, everyone in the, uh, on the table is like, how tacky is this? But we have to understand that al-amal salih brings down malaika. And it brings down sakina with it. And that's why that's the busyness of mu'mineen. They're busy finding one, wh- what way can I do something different here? That's going to bring a different type of malak, a different type of sakina, a different type of reward. Because the reward of, for example, ten, what's the reward of tending to your family? Why is it better than doing ibadah for yourself? Well, the reward is, there's an earthly reward, is that you have a good home life, right? The more you do those deeds, and you feel like, well, I'm losing out. I'm losing out on time. I could be working on my career. But the more you do those deeds, it's going to come back to you in this life before the next in this life, it's going to come back to you that your, fam- your, your, your kids are upright. They're mentally sound. They're, they're well-adjusted. They like you. All that is part of the reward. And then all of their good deeds that you do, you have a share in it. You're a, you're a shareholder, a, uh, an investor in their book of deeds. No effort are based on concealment. The default of no effort is it's based on concealment. So the default of extra worship is it's based on consumer. Now, you may go to the masjid or to a public place because you need the encouragement. That's fine. But to keep it from showing off in pretense, a man, it was Wahab, Ibn Wahab. Ibn Wahab was a famous student of Malik ibn Anas and Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad. Ibn Wahab is the one who famously said, Hadith is a place where you can get lost. Remember, not dalal. Dalal is misguidance, religious, spiritual misguidance. But madalla is a place where you can get lost. And if it were not for Malik and Alayth, and I would have been destroyed. Malik would say, leave this hadith, take this hadith. Leave this hadith, take this hadith. Don't act upon it. Yes, it has a chain, but don't act upon it because we have stronger evidence. So there must be something about this hadith. The context of it is incomplete. We don't know how to uh, derive a ruling from it. So leave it off. You have to understand, there are sahih hadiths that Malik himself said, I have narrated hadith. I wish that I would would have rather been struck by two whips than, than have narrated those hadith. These are the hadith that would confuse somebody, let's say, about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So not everything that's sahih, we just take it and throw it out there because you don't know the context around it. What did the Prophet intend by it? How do we make sense of this plus an opposing sounding hadith? So Ibn Wahab himself describes the first time he saw Malik. And he says, I saw upon him a waqar and a sakina and a serenity and a light. And I said, what is this, Ya Malik, that you are upon? Malik said to him, let your worship in private be greater than your worship in public, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will place in you 
uh, a nur and a sakina. Okay. So, uh, if you want to ask yourself, how are you doing in deen in terms of sincerity? Ask yourself, is your worship in private better than your worship in public? Uh, there, what about the people who are so busy in life? There is a famous uh, saying that sometimes scholars are too busy. They get so busy in their schedule, they don't have time for their own self. And the answer to that is this is exactly why the Prophet wasallam said that the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea all seek forgiveness for the scholar who walks the earth. Why is that? It's because the scholar, like as a student of knowledge too, the scholar is so, it's preferable for the scholar to spread knowledge than to do private worship. It's preferable for a student of knowledge to study than to do private worship. So therefore the result of that is that Allah has sakhara, made the animals and the trees and the fish and the birds and everyone in between to seek refuge for the righteous scholar and for the student of knowledge. hundred percent. So Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal was in Baghdad and he would speak to his family so, mu- so much about his Shafi'i. Now he had one daughter. He had other kids, but he, one of his person at the, at the house at that time was one daughter. She said, she was so looking forward to meeting this legend, Al-Imam al-Shafi'i. Then when he came and he, he spent the night, she said, I have to see what this Sheikh does in the middle of the night. So she sat, I guess, peeking out of her door, waiting to see the ibadah of a Shafi'i in the middle of the night. When she looked, she saw not a single lamp had, got, had opened up, not a single drop of water was used, and he came out for fudge, and he didn't make wudu. So the next morning, her father realizes she's not as excited anymore. Like she was excited to meet a shafi. She's no longer that excited. So he asked her. He said, she said, a shafi is not what you make him out to be. That's what she said. He's not what, what I expected. And he said, why? He said, she said, I did not see him open a lamp for prayer the entire night. I did not hear any water for wudu the entire night, and he comes out for Fajr without making wudu. So, he's not what I expect. Sleep all night, no tahajjud, no ibadah, nothing. Imam Ahmed, he knows something else is different. So he brings a shafi, and he says, can you explain to us why that is? He said, I prayed Aisha, and on my mind were 70 new matters that were brought to my attention that needed a ruling. So I spent the entire night writing the rulings or thinking of the rulings and solving these problems for the Muslims until you called the Adhan for Fajr, then I came straight out. So Imam Ahmed said to his daughter, you and I spent our daughter for our own afterlife, for ourselves. As Shafi spent it for the Ummah.
And that's why he is who he is. So the scholar and the student of knowledge, it is better for him to attain fiqh than to do private ibadah. Unless, of course, his heart is going to harden and he needs to do ibadah for, uh, for himself, of course. So we're not saying you, you never do that, of course. But we're saying that the priority is ilm, knowledge, benefits everybody. Ibadah sort of benefits yourself only. But there is another reaction to that or response to that is ibadah does benefit others too. In that when you soften your heart, your interactions with others is better. Your sincerity is better. Your position with Allah is better. Your dua is answered. So there is um, some back and forth in that discussion. There is always more reward gained by doing the obligation in the masjid in all cases. Okay. And of course, there are some ibadat that can only be done in a jama'ah, such as of course, Jum'ah, without a doubt. Kusuf, the solar eclipse, is done in Jum'ah. The lunar eclipse is done at home. And, of course, the Eidain, the two Eids. So that's the end of the chapter on the prayer of the Prophet ﷺ at home being better than uh, in the masjid. Let's now open it up to YouTube for your questions and answers. And let's see what Instagram has going on. What are they saying on... Questions and answers. Oops. Insta. Witness. Al-Latif. I've heard magic being denied by educated and practicing Muslims and Christians as a real phenomenon. No, sihr, of course, is real. The Prophet ﷺ... What is sihr? Essentially, sihr is to have a an illegitimate communication with an angel, uh, sorry, with a jinn, and that jinn gets his other jinns to harm another Muslim. That's the khulasa. That's the summary of what black magic is. Remember, today is Wednesday, so at 3 o'clock we're going to have the dua, or maybe even earlier. Okay? I'm not going to scroll up, so if you put your question up in the pa- up uh, before... Uh, put it here again so I could see it. Uh, reminder, next week, ArcView classes begin. Sign up at arcview.org. Hanbali Fiqh is taught Thursday. Shafi Fiqh Wednesday. Maliki Fiqh Tuesday. Hanafi Fiqh Monday. All four madhabs are taught. Secondly, Joharat al-Tawheed Aqidah. We're teaching Intro and intermediate. Intro uh, aqidah is taught Sunday. Uh, advanced or intermediate, I think it's advanced. Aqidah is taught Jawharat al-Tawheed by Sheikh Usama Salhiya of North Jersey. He's a Palestinian scholar. He's American, like us, but Palestinian of origin. He's teaching Sharh al-Bayjuri upon Jawharat al-Tawheed Wednesday nights. How you attend these classes is that you're either going to attend, there's two levels. There's basic and then there's scholarship track. Hey, uh, do you have the, the, the schedule? If you have it, stick it up here. There's Wednesday, uh, there's ArcView basic and ArcView scholarship track. All right. And when you sign up for these, you're given a Zoom link and you show up to class. You just show up to class. That's it with the Zoom link. And secondly, there's over 50 
pre-recorded classes that you could take from. And we have classes for kids. We have classes for youth uh, on Sunday morning. All right. And Ryan's going to put the screen up, uh, put this up right now that you could all see what the schedule looks like. Okay. So sign up for arcview.org and you will inshallah see that the website, uh, we're still improving the website, but nonetheless, the website right now is very crisp and clear and you'll see, you'll be able to see exactly uh, what the classes are, when they are. It's very simple. You sign up, you get, you either watch the pre-recorded classes on myarcview.org or you uh, click on the Zoom link when class is scheduled. And by the way, you got to keep up because with Maghrib prayer times, there's always a little bit of a change in the, the class schedule. So sign up for that today. Ibn Walid, why do Malikis recite the Quran in a different recitation? In fact, the Malikiyah, it is Sunnah, Fadila, or Sunnah, uh, to recite the Quran in Riwayat Warsh. And that is because that is the riwayah of the Quraysh. So that is the original uh, recitation and revelation came in what we call Warsh. Uh, An-Nafi, Warsh is an Egyptian. Nafi is from Medina himself. He took it from the Quraysh. Uh, in other words, the Sahaba who were from Mecca. And that's the chain of transmission. So the narration of Warsh is in fact, you think it's odd. No, that's the, that's the norm. Uh, at the time of the Prophet that was the recitation of Quraysh that's their dialect when you say kids what exactly are the age range for the classes my kids are 9 and 8 the classes are made for a very broad audience that I would say encompasses from age 9 to age 14 the online classes the online classes they're very broadly done some of them are specifically for kids ages like 9 and down, such as Hala Amr's class fic for kids. If you go all, go to when you go to myarcview.org. Actually, right, could you get a screenshot and put it up? There's including the search box. It's very important for people to know about the search box. There at the search box, okay, you uh, click in, yeah, uh, no, hit all, hit all, go down to the bottom. Hit all, uh, view all products. Yeah, that screen. And you see that find a product or find a search, that search box? Include that in the screenshot so everyone can see it. Okay. Yeah, when I was doing the history class, yeah. I basically like, took a poll. I was like, how old are you guys? Like, I've, been, I've been with you guys for like, a couple months. Mm-hmm. And like, people were saying that like, it's second grade and yeah. grade. Yeah, because you know what happened was that Hala, uh, who does our kids' classes, she noticed that moms are taking the class with her. So she's like, okay, well, it's a little bit broader than just kids. So we just made it youth and kids. Ibrahim Khan, are the lectures pre-recorded? Can they be pleased in case we don't make it? Everything is is pre-recorded and uploaded. It's not pre-recorded. The live classes are live. But the recordings are uploaded every single day, every single course. And if you go right now to hit, click on arcv.org, you can go through the list of courses. 
go through the list of the classes that we have that are already pre-recorded. Some of them were pre-recorded by design. Others of them were live classes that got pre-recorded, or the, the recordings which, of which are up. Muslim mom says, I am asked to help a family who is in dire need financially, but I have my own financial debt, which is less urgent. Should I help the family or pay my expenses? I would say you divide it up. Divide it up, but depending on their level of need. If their level of need is dire, that like they, 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 they don't have, for example, a place to, to live and they need a down payment for an apartment, that would take priority over my debt. If it is a regular case where they're just short of funds all the time, then I would take maybe a sliver of my money and give it to them every month. A sliver that your heart will never say enough. Right? Your heart would not ever tell you enough with this. So you don't want that to happen. How to get 10-year-old who refuses to pray or hates to pray to pray Salah, says Muhammad Abdullah. Well, by 10 years old, to be honest with you, it's a bit late. You, they should, you should have habituated them to Salah when they are young enough that harsh measures are not needed. Right? But now that you're in this situation, and everyone's in a situation, people don't all have, they don't come up in a family that's exposed to the deen all the time. And they have situations. Maybe somebody was not even on the right track, they started themselves, got themselves on the right track way later. No problem. Things happen and there's always a solution for anyone who's sincere. So I would have to say, very quickly, before they get older, in the same way that you make them go to school, you make them go to bed on time, you make them not eat ice cream before dinner. What happens if you have a kid who you see taking out a bowl of cereal at 5.45 p.m. and you're, the stove is cooking and the table's set? You ever see like kids do this all the time, right? They don't know any better. Take out a bowl of cereal. What are you, what are you doing? We're about to, I'm about to have a snack. What snack? We're about to have dinner. Put it away. He doesn't know any better. What can he do? But you just tell him what to do, right? And they do it. Likewise, school. So you got to sort of get this done quickly before he gets too old. Then he's going to maybe be resentful about it. That's my advice. Because So I would go based upon how do you do this with other people? I mean, with other things. How do you get him to do his homework? And yes, he may not like it in the beginning. That's fine. You have to understand human nature. You don't like something. Once you get in the habit of it, you change. So you not liking it, someone not liking something, should not deter us. In the beginning, they might not like it. They will get used to it after a while. And the day that they need Allah for something, and they make dua and they get saved. I had a youth. This youth must have been in seventh grade at the time. They started to come to the masjid. And they said, you know what? I used to come to the masjid and pray with everyone just because everyone else did it. And I didn't really want to come to the masjid unless I saw my friends or go to the gym. Then I needed something from Allah. Listen to this youth, fitrah of a human being. Also, like they're exposed to the basis of Islam. I started to, I needed something from Allah. I needed help. So I started coming to the masjid and praying because I needed help. And Allah solved my problem. Now I come on my own. This is like a child saying this. 
So some things that you don't like, they're good for you. Get used to make you make your youth and your kids get used to it. The kuffar and the munafiqeen let the most oh, this is indoctrination. You zip it. Okay? We don't care what you have to say because you don't believe what we believe. Okay? Oh, but your kufr is not indoctrination? Your evolution is not indoctrination? Everybody is transmitting their beliefs to the best of their ability to their kids. Everybody. If you don't, then you don't truly believe it. How's that? If you don't, then you don't truly believe it. Or your belief in it is, you know, lukewarm. Everybody does this, and you have the right to, and I expect everyone, you should be expected to do that, right? The question is, is your belief right or wrong? Is your method of transmitting it healthy or unhealthy? Of course, there are unhealthy ways of doing these things. They're not good for their mental health or the emotional health or even the success of the transmission. So the question really is, is it the right belief or the wrong belief? Is the manner of doing it right or wrong? But the idea of you transmitting your beliefs to your kids, and that's one of your number one priorities. Are you kidding? Every single human being does that on the earth. right? You think a Dawkins out there is not very keen on his life agenda to make sure his kids don't believe in God. That he would be awake at night, tossing and turning, if he found that his kid's like a born-again Christian or became a Muslim. So, when people fall, Muslims fall for these things and say, oh, I, I don't want to admit, then you yourself, your iman yourself has issues, to be honest with you. Okay. Because if you truly knew this is 100% good for you and abandoning this is 100% bad for you, you would do whatever you possibly could to ensure that your kids have the same thing. If you had a cup of poison right here, right, and you believed it was poison, you think Tom Brady's letting his kids have Coke? Or food in general, besides grass? Right? These people, that's their belief. Their belief is dietary, right? Other people have political beliefs. I'm sure the Clintons make sure their daughter grew up a Democrat and a liberal. And every woke person makes sure that their kid is not, it hates Trump, hates right-wingers. Hates everything, you know, that's not woke. And the right-wingers are doing the same thing. Making sure their kids are not woke. Are not woke. Everyone does. So, for us to do that is an expectation. And it's just a matter of the way in which you do it. At that point, it's the matter of uh, how you do it. But the fact that it's a high priority on your agenda, that's expected. I don't think anybody... You think the, the rich want to see their kids becoming poor? The educated, are, it will, will, will they sleep at night if the, my kid turned out he's a complete fool? In the story you just told, says Sophia, was Imam al-Shafi at Imam Ahmed's house? Yes, they were at Imam Ahmed's house. Al-Shafi was visiting Ahmed. Al-Shafi lived in Baghdad for a little bit. When the crisis came of the Mu'tazilites, and the government of uh, the Abbasids were doing what they were doing, Ashafi went to Egypt. But he would visit Baghdad. If you're playing a video game, says Adam, who has a, a little picture of Bernie Sanders there, has his profile pic. 
If you're playing a video game that has background music, is it obligatory to turn it off? Uh, okay, so background music. Um, it is, according to some ulama, treated as music, and some, like Sheikh Al-Bulti, do treat it as... They do not treat it as music, because that's not the intent of, of your listening to it. So there are two different... But I would say, yes, I wouldn't over... For like, if you're going to play these video games for a long period of time and you're listening to this all the time, then maybe at some point you want to mute it. I don't, I don't know what the background music like is for, for games these days. The last game I played was Mario Brothers. I wouldn't call that music. I would call it noise. No, right? It's like an elevator thing. Do you have experience with this? So it's just like the radio, basically. So I would mute that stuff. You know that Mario Brothers has the same tune just going over and over, and it's like five notes, and it's not even an instrument. It's like, who knows what that is? It's a weird sound. I think some of these kids don't even know what Mario Brothers is, right? If there's a chain of transmission of video games, history of video games, it's Atari, and Atari Ping Pong was the first game, just Ping Pong. It's like a pixel, goes like this, and three pixels, you have to hit the three pixels or the five pixels, and it's a black screen with literally 11 pixels on the screen. Five on one stick, five on another stick, and one pixel going in the middle, right? And hitting each other. And that was the first ever video game. And people used to be excited to play that. You're excited to go to someone's house that has Atari. And then Nintendo came out. Oh my gosh, the revolution of Nintendo. With the little Italian guys jumping and chasing the turtles and, and trying to save the, the princess at the end. Mario and Luigi. All right, so Nimra Ahmed says, So, it is true that there are ahadith which aren't widespread and kept away from the general public. Yes, Malik has fatawa. You do not, if hadith will be misunderstood by the people, you don't publicly preach it. You may teach it in the student, to the students, but you don't publicly preach it if it will be misunderstood by the people. But these aren't rulings of religion. They're narrations. Big difference. It's not like the students of knowledge and the shiuch have their own religion. No. It's, it's like a narration. A narration is very different from a religious teaching. That is, re- yeah, something mutashabih, a one-off statement that is not something repeated over and over as part of our religion. That's the difference. Ibrahim says, a lot of people say I'm very mature for my age. Is this bad? Do I need to change this? I think that's praiseworthy to be mature for your age. So you better marry someone mature too or else she's not going to understand you. Sophia says, Imam Ahmed, but I thought I heard him tell the story with Imam Malik once. No, but Shafi did stay with Imam Malik for a period of time when he arrived at Mecca. But this specific story that we said is um, was about Imam Ahmed. Random user says I should be doing my homework right now. Mm. Maham says, what is, what is the crystal? So when, I, when we had uh, to redo the MyArc view page, I thought one of the best ways to make it distinct that we're shifting from subject to subject is that there should be a theme of the thumbnail for each topic. So, 
for aqidah, what was it? Well, what is aqidah? It's a knot, right? But what are we going to do? Put knots? Pictures of knots? No. Aqd is like an oath or a knot. But I felt, you know what? When we study aqidah, when you hear something, what do we call it? Don't we call it gems, right? It's a gem. So the thumbnail for, in my arc view, for all the aqidah classes is gems, gemstones, right? Yeah, Joharat al-Tawheed, the the uh, the jewel or the the Johara is like the uh, like a jewel, like some thing that you find in the earth of value. Okay, so it's that for the Hadith of the Prophet it's the spirals that expand out because for the Prophet did not the Prophet say that. He was given Jawami' al-Kalim, Jawami' al-Kalim, which is uh, the um, gathering of all words. So you get one hadith, but it spins out to many meanings. And that's why we used radials for that. For fiqh, fiqh is what? It's the, it's the bastion of Islam. So we use mosques, pictures of mosques for fiqh. Of course, for history, we use maps. And for youth, we, uh, for the Qur'an, we used the folios, the, beauty, the beautiful illuminations that the Muslim uh, calligraphers did in the past. Of course, for Sira Shema'ad, different pictures of the Prophet's mosque. For Tasawwuf, because of like the romantic nature of Tasawwuf, we used the Orientalist paintings. right? And then for the... Uh, you know these Orientalists? They loved... The Islamic world. Their paintings are amazing, right? Their paintings are amazing. And none of the thumbnails, I don't think, has a full human being. So that makes it halal, right? Unless maybe some of them, well, then don't look at that, right? Then it's makru. At least, it's maximum is makru. And then for the youth, it's just silhouettes. So you could tell that you shifted from category to category as you scroll. Isn't this make sense, Ryan? Because in the past, what were we doing? Any old picture, Right? We just throw up any old picture. That doesn't make any sense. To just throw up any old picture that's related. So there's no logic to the images, right? Yeah. So now, just by Arabic, of course, you're going to see the letters, right? Uh, Arabic letters. You see Arabic letters, then you know this is Arabic. You see mosques, it's the fortress of Islam is fiqh, the law. All right? So you see these big brick st- uh, stone masajid. You're there to study the law. Gems, it's aqidah. Right, romantic pictures of the past. That's to sew of. Uh, Yasin is saying, is the Arabic track on ArcView is it comprehensive or should it be supplemented? Here's my thing in Arabic: it's the time that you spent in it. Don't ever imagine. I'll, you can go through all of the recordings once. Do not imagine that. That's it. No, you. I would say you have to go through the recordings two, three times. Watch every class, every course, two, three times. And I really think that for all the classes, but more about Arabic than anything else. Right? Especially the ones where we read hadiths. We read from Imam Ahmad's book of Zuhd. Read it over and over. Or pause it, read it for yourself, then click play, then listen to me read it and give the explanation. Right? So, that's for Arabic. And to me, it's not about which course. It's really about the one that will hold your attention enough for you to repeat it over and over and over and over. 
I think Arabic, the, the best, honestly, the best way that I think Arabic is taught is somebody screenshotting themselves reading a text and then explaining it. You can pause it, you can read it yourself, and then hit play and listen to them read it and then go over it. Because, and I think the worst way to study Arabic is from a textbook. Nobody understands this. So why are we all kidding ourselves? A textbook. Today we shall study this. No, just give me one or two rulings about the grammar. Give me a table that I could refer to, like pronouns or whatever. And then let's read. Read, and then we'll get to see it in action. That's the best way to study, in my personal opinion. Uh, Faradino says, I, I signed up for the Madiki Fit class. Uh, yes, if you can, purchase the books... Uh, Ashmawiya is Ashmawiya even out to be purchased? I don't know. It is. Okay, good. English Arabic or just Arabic? Okay. Ashmawiya, Akhdari, Ibn Ashir. Get those books, hard copies, and put it on your phone or your laptop, and we will be reading directly from those books. And at the end of the year, inshallah ta'ala, you will have studied, and all the recordings are already there if you need to study it again. All right? If you need to go over it again. Because this is one of the courses that we're doing even though we already have the recordings there, but we do it live. Ask my way is short too. You can just print it out. How to not become bitter and angry in difficult times. I'm going to close with this question. And I'm going to point to not just this person, but a whole genre of uh, blame, sophisticated blame culture. And all they do is blame other people. Let me tell you this. As bad as the oppressor is, the oppressor is nothing other than a tool of Allah. Either that, as Muslims, we're talking about as Muslims, we ha- if Allah has sent an oppressor upon us, it is for one of three reasons. To elevate our ranks, if we're already righteous, is not the rank of Sayyidina Isa elevated? Every prophet is always being elevated, right? Allah sent him an oppressor. Some of those rabbis in combination with the Roman governor. Okay? As much as they want to tell you all those rabbis were innocent, they weren't. Okay? It elevated his rank. So the oppressor is sent to us to elevate our rank. How do we know that? If we react to the oppression with more good deeds. We do better in our Islam. And our Iman goes up. And our Ibadah and our prayer goes up. That's number one. Number two. If we stay the same, it's a, it's a purification of our sins. So Allah has sent us this oppressor to purify our sins. Number three. It's a punishment. If, we, if a, an oppressor comes upon us and we become worse Less iman, less deen, less ibadah, less dua, it's a punishment. I have no business, I could care less about the oppressor. The real question is, the perspective is, Allah has sent this person to us. To see, to test us, to purify us, to elevate our ranks, and maybe even to punish us. We ask Allah protection from that. But, I see a video today, I cannot even believe how what these what is liberal arts doing to these kids uh indian 
pod TikToker, influencer, podcaster, who knows what. I am fat because of white supremacy. What? I will prove to you, she says, why I'm overweight is to be, the blame is on white colonizers. Where is your head? Are you serious? And then long-winded stories about how they came in and they imposed a new diet and they uh, used up all of our soil, so we all that because they wanted our spices. At a certain point, the looking at the oppressor becomes an excess. And it becomes no different than a heedlessness of somebody who is always just chasing money and, and, and building up homes and buying cars and homes. They're no different. They're no different. Both of them are heedless of Allah. And that's why for us, to look at the oppressor, you are doing yourself a disservice. Unless, okay, if you're analyzing, whatever, fine. But at a, at a spiritual level, the oppressor is nothing other than a tool. And your question is, how does Allah want me to react? Because that's truly what Allah Ta'ala is looking. Is, is, that's the wisdom. That is the wisdom. And yet we have a culture in which people spend all their life and academic departments all to blame a different... It started with Karl Marx and all his issues with the owners of production. Fine, you have a critique, fine. But it's like an obsession. Like Marxists are just obsessed with anybody who has any power or anybody who has any structure, right? Or any hierarchy, okay? You know that there's a, a, a war now being waged on the, the food pyramid, right? That this is a hierarchy. So they're just obsessed with anything outside of themselves that is doing well in life and yes, maybe oppressing, right? Even if we said they're oppressing 50% of the time. What's your business? The oppressor. Allah Ta'ala will not get you out of the hands of the oppressor if you are obsessed with the oppressor. We as Muslims, that's how we do it. And if you view the oppressor as merely a tool of Allah in developing your personal story, then you would not be bitter at all. You wouldn't be bitter at all. You would care less about him. He's just a tool. Yes, I hate him from an emotional standpoint. I hate him, what he's done to me. I hate them... Even from a religious standpoint, we're supposed to hate the oppressor. We're supposed to fight the oppressor. But why? Because Allah commanded us to. Yes, emotionally, I hate the oppressor, but I'm going to, 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 to couch that in the commandment of Allah. I'm only going to hate him to the degree Allah commands me to hate him. If that oppressor tomorrow repents and becomes a Muslim, that's a different story. Or repents, period. It's a different story. Now I see what does Allah command me to do towards that. I would say, okay, I forgive you, but I need justice. You still owe me. Fine. But I forgive you your khalas between you and Allah Ta'ala after that. So, uh, this is extremely important as a perspective for Muslims to realize that this, and to identify a constant, non-stop, study, analysis, all of how the oppressor is oppressing. And they consider this knowledge and benefit when you're actually dragging an entire generation of people, all of their energy is directed and attention at the oppressor. Nothing to the creator of the oppressor. Nothing about the wisdom of why is Allah allowing that oppressor to come to us. Okay? So that to me is actually as bad 
it's a it's a misguidance of the victim. The victim, yes, he's a victim, but he can also be misguided. Just because you're a victim, that is not a moral sta- station. That's a legal station. In court, you're a victim, but the victim can be as misguided as the oppressor. Of course, the oppressor has two misguidances: that he's misguided in himself, and he oppressed the victim. The victim could only have he'll have one thing for him and one thing against him. So. Even if the perspective of the victim is misguided, they still are owed the justice, right? In this life or the next. Okay? That's why the Prophet, there's a hadith in which he says, if there's oppressor and victim, be the victim. Okay? But that doesn't mean the guidance, the perspective, the mind, mentality, the attitude of the victim cannot be misguided. It 110% can be misguided. You're obsessed with your oppressor. You don't even realize he's just a tool. So that's something that will help a person avoid bitterness, what this questioner asked, because I don't even view you as an autonomous creature. You're just a tool of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and and you're part of my story. I have my own story, and Allah has chosen. In my story, and every one of you, this is not some self-help, self-esteem talk, it's truth. Every single person has their own story, and is at the center of their own story. And I quote to you, Abu Hassan al-Shadili, he was in a state of muraqabah, and he said, Oh Allah, when will I become one of your awliya? He heard a voice that said, When you become abdan shakura, when you become a grateful servant. He said, Oh Allah, when will I become a grateful servant? I thank you for everything. He's, he heard a voice, he said, and he's the, he heard a voice that said, When you realize everything was created for you. He said, Oh Allah, the cow the goat, the sheep, fine. But the prophets and the kings. The prophets and the kings. We're, we serve them. We follow them. They're more important than us. That's his mentality. He said, oh, he said, oh but the prophet and the kings. Prophets and kings. Then he heard a voice say, the prophets were sent to guide you, the kings to protect you. So we do view as like a cosmology and an aqidah and a from a, a perspective is that you are the center of your own story. There's no, that's a, it's not self-centeredness, it's not narcissism. That's if you abuse other people for the sake of yourself. And if you refuse to see the perspective of others and the rights of others and the respect that others are due. But you're at the center of your own story. You're a, when you look at some of these Marxist-leaning views or whatever you want to call them, and the whole woke culture is all about this, you are not. In their view, the oppressor is at the center and he's using you. And they've like, they're, they're obsessed with the oppressor. All they care about is everything is an oppressor, an oppression and a structure and a blah, blah, blah. All of their energy and their himma is there. Whereas for us, it's not. I don't even want to hear about him. Yes, analysis of their thing, fine. See what's going on, fine. How are they messing us up, fine. But there is definitely an excess in how they revolve around this concept. And to the point of the colonizer is guilty of everything now. It's ridiculous. You have no agency of yourself. Okay, So uh, that's a, a little thing on the side there for this brother and for uh, everyone else, inshallah, that could you know take from that perspective. I have to go now. Hey, Rai, why don't you, can you do the, the, the dhikr and the dua? All right. So everybody, uh, I would highly suggest you do it for yourself. I actually have to literally have to run right away. 
uh, unfortunately, but you all do the dhikr of Wednesday in the next 10 minutes, and inshallah ta'ala we will continue it as, uh, we're not stopping it as a weekly tradition, but this week I have to run inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu an la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk, wal asr, inna al-insana lafi khusr, illa al-ladhina amanu wa aminu al-salihat, wa tawasaw bil-haq, wa tawasaw bil-sabr, والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته